0: hello everybody and welcome to episode five of i wish you were dead a podcast about things that used to be alive my name is mike that is gavin gavin how does it feel that we have now
1: been podcasting in two years it feels incredible mike we have officially been a podcast for two years it's it's technically official even though it's realistically been five weeks but that's the details details Look, I will gladly take whatever we can get out
0: of this. I am so glad. We are just to, once again, as the beginning of our podcast is want to do, pulling back the, uh, or looking into that fourth wall. We're recording this in 2020, but we are happily uh, talking about what it's like to be in 2021. And I think that I can speak for just about anybody listening. Uh, I am glad to be out of 2020 and into this vast new world that is 2021 with all the promises and hopes. That it has for us. Thank God. Thank God indeed. So I think we can um kind of get we can get right into this very quickly um, at the beginning. We are not going to be doing our part two of Gavin's field work in this episode. We have that planned for the future, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting a little bit more in-depth on that field work that Gavin is doing. But in this episode, we're going to be doing um, it's sort of a couple of different things. Uh, we've got like a main lesson and a way we're going to do that main lesson. And apparently also, as I'm looking at our bullet points that Gavin has written <laughs> for us in this episode, we're mostly going to be making fun of me and yes. how much I don't know. So Gavin, can you just explain to everybody what it is that this episode is actually going to be about and why I'm already wrong
1: about things? Absolutely. So I want to put out a a content warning here in that this will be (laughs) this will be one of the more technical episodes like scientifically technical episodes that we will record so i just want to put that out there try and stay with me Um, we will have some links uh just as we did for last episode uh for you to sort of follow along if you so choose but I'll, i'll try to make it as layperson comfortable as possible
0: which is also my job is just to make sure that the average joe that doesn't actually know what they're talking about can understand what's going on that is most of my role here and i will uh i will do the best i can in what is going to be <laughs> one of our most technical episodes
1: yeah so as we sort of talked about probably a couple times but i think we talked about it a lot in episode one but a lot of science especially once you get to graduate school is unlearning things that you learned at lower levels so for example and this this doesn't just apply to like graduate school or college but when you're like I don't know a sophomore or so in high school you start on or whenever you take you know high school biology where you live Uh, for me it was ninth grade I think and but you sort of unlearn some of the things or, or get a little more clarification on some things that you were taught in like elementary school where it's like What you were told was like sort of right, but not right because of this thing that was too complicated for an elementary schooler to understand. And that just sort of shifts as you, you know, go up through science. So like in graduate school, I'm unlearning things that I learned in like the early couple years of undergrad. So this is sort of going to be me talking about vertebrates specifically, because that is the group of animals that I work with. And sort of some of the unlearning that I had to do will be passed on to you. So this is going to be
0: very similar. I've mentioned a couple of times how I'm a, a social studies teacher. This is going to be kind of similar to how I have to teach some of my seventh graders. That it was not Christopher Columbus, Jesus the Pilgrims, and George Washington that threw the tea <laughs> overboard and wrote the Declaration of Independence and started America. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than what they might be remembering from second and third grade. Not to say that it is necessarily wrong. They might have kind of the right general direction, but it is oversimplified to a point of almost being useless in any technical sense. And so that's going to be kind of, I think, the exercise that we are going for here is maybe taking what you might remember or the gist of what you might remember and distilling that down into what is actually correct for The kind of science that we're trying to do here
1: yeah definitely so well i guess we'll start right off and talk about vertebrates so i know they're they're in the google doc so mike look away from the google doc for a second and understood and and listeners you can play along as well a little bit of a game so what are i'll give you this that there are five sort of quote-unquote main groups of vertebrates so, Mike, off the top of your head, what do you think those five groups are?
0: Five main groups of vertebrates. So, mammals, I yep. assume have to be one. I'm going to say, so we've got mammals, probably like reptiles, yep. amphibians, yep. fish. Yep. And so missing. mammals, re- I'm missing, I'm missing yeah. an important, I, is it, let me ask you this question. Is it an
1: obvious one? Yes you see them every day so, oh my gosh um in fact on land they are the by far the most diverse most common group
0: Gavin, you're not really helping me here in fact you're really shooting my self-confidence
1: all right <laughs> hit me here
0: I, I am I'm, I'm apparently I'm missing one that apparently all of our listeners should have already
1: gotten by now birds oh goodness so you'd be forgiven because I think we oh, did talk my about gosh I think you'd be we we did talk about how. Birds are technically reptiles, which we'll get into later in this episode. Um, So you'll be forgiven if you were like, oh, I already said them because I said reptiles. Ha ha ha.
0: Yes, that's the technicality that I'm going for is that I said, (laughs) I said reptiles and also meant birds.
1: That's exactly what I had in my head. Exactly. See, but so most people think, you know, when you say fish or amphibian or reptiles, most people know what you talked about. And for the most part, that's true. However... What most people think that, you know, just because most people think of that doesn't mean that it's actually true. So with a lot of extant or currently alive animals, not extinct animals, it is pretty cut and dry. You know, they fit neatly into these groups because we made these groups based on the animals that are around, you know, and then we fit extinct animals into them. Or if they don't fit neatly into any new one or any currently made group, we make a new group for them. However, a lot of these groups are way more complicated than you might think. So let's just start at the most quote unquote simple of them, which is fish. So fish, and we're just going to be going down. So it'll, I'll give you a little fourth wall stuff here. In our notes, it says ask Mike, what is a fish? And then in the next bullet, it says, explain why he's wrong. And then in parentheses, no offense.
0: Which I assure you, no, no offense is taken for, for any of this.
1: (laughs) So Mike, what does a fish mean to you? So as I'm
0: trying to think about this, what is a fish? My first thought when it comes to a fish is something that is number one, lives exclusively or functionally exclusively in the water and breathes through gills and isn't particularly big but as i like as i'm trying to work through this and trying to like see where this is going immediately what comes to my mind is things like dolphins or whales or sharks and do those count as fish and does the size make a difference and this or that so i'm going to try and put my definition of fish at something that lives exclusively or basically exclusively underwater that you know what i'm actually going to leave that definition there i'm going to try and keep it as broad as possible for this because i think that that's going to encompass the most number of things instead of it just being um Instead of it being more specific, just anything that lives basically exclusively in the water is going to count as a fish for our purposes. How'd I do?
1: It's okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's okay, little Johnny. Yes. <laughs>
1: you did your best. Uh... <laughs> so fish. Fish are... So I'll, I'll come, out, come right out and say there is no group... You know, every other of these, of those five main groups, there is a group of animals, like a scientific group of animals of that. So for example, amphibians is the class amphibia, reptiles is reptilia, birds is aves, mammals are mammalia, but there is no group for fish because fish are so weird and crazy and diverse. Like fish are by far the most diverse vertebrates, like on on the planet by a large margin. And so there's there's no single group of fish. There are however some big groups that can that encompass what most people think of when they mean fish. When I when most people think of fish, they usually think of a member of the group Osteichthyes, which are the bony fish. These are the fish basically anything that you can think of that is a fish besides something that is a shark is a osteichthian, or a bony fish. So that is what most people mean when they say fish. Can you repeat that one more time just so I can
0: try and pronounce it for my next question? Sure. osteichthyes. Osteichthyes. And so what are the defining characteristics of an osteichthyes, and what would separate it from, say, a shark?
1: So the, the biggest thing is that they have bones. So sharks do not have bones with the exception of their jaws. All of Uh, The other group that sharks are in is called chondrichthyes, which are technically like the technical term is the cartilaginous fish because they are made of cartilage. So that is the main difference between those two is that bony fish have real actual like hard bone and Chondrichthians have soft bone cartilage. That is the, the biggest difference between the two. There are a lot of other differences too. So for example, if you've ever, you know, if you happen to be like a fisher and have, you know, gutted a couple of fish, you probably know that most fish, most osteichthians have a what's called a swim bladder, which is basically just this bladder of that they, that they fill with air to sort of control their buoyancy in the water. Sharks don't do that. They do a really complicated thing. By creating oil in their liver that is less dense than water, that makes them less dense than water. So they can uh, create that and break that down very, very quickly to make themselves more dense or less dense, depending on uh, what, where they need to be in the water.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong here, but just as I'm thinking about this, the difference between the fish that most people think of and sharks, wouldn't another rather key difference be their size or am I, am I kind of off base on that?
1: Not necessarily, so the, the largest fish around today typically are sharks, yes. They're, they are typically things like, wh- whale shark is the largest, um, I, I think it is the, yeah, the largest like non-whale animal alive today, because despite it being called a whale shark, it is a, a, tr- a true shark, unlike whales, which we I'm sure we will talk about in a bit. But yeah, they, they are the largest fish alive today that doesn't necessarily mean that chondrichthyans are bigger because there have been, you know, bony fish. Uh, one that comes to example is one called Leedsichthys that was alive. I don't know exactly when this thing lived. I just know that it was really, really big, you know, pushing 60, 70 feet. So very, very large and, and it was a bony fish. So that's Today, yeah, that's probably true. Although there are some really big osteichthyans around today. Things like the sturgeon can be 20 plus foot. Things like, you know, bluefin tuna can also be very, very large. So in general, yeah, but that's, I wouldn't use that reliably. Understood.
0: So that's something of a both, rel- you know, recency and unfamiliarity bias on my part when it comes to size. Yep. So we've talked a little bit about kind of what fits into that fish category do we have any kind of a reliable definition for what is you know what is a fish if you were going to put a definition on that i did my best yeah uh, and you and you gave me the uh, the old d student who just gave an answer <laughs> that was almost that was almost correct what do, like how would we define a fish scientifically
1: so this brings me into probably the first really technical thing that i wanted to talk about today which are different types of groupings when we're making sort of like a tree of life. So the main one that we focus on is say you pick a species. So say, say you're imagining a tree of life diagram in in your mind, you pick one of the branching points, one of the, like the base of the V basically that it makes you pick that and everything above it. So all of its descendants. That is called a monophyletic group. Those are the good ones that we want. The bad ones are something. So say you take that same spot and then include all of its descendants, except for maybe a couple. So say you exclude some of the branches at one end because they don't quite fit.
0: That was going to be kind of one of my questions is, is it possible that you start kind of too far back on this tree of life and you know everything that comes beneath eventually becomes so disparate that it doesn't make any sense to include them in any one species or genus
1: absolutely and so so this that kind of group is called a paraphyletic group and fish quote-unquote is probably the best example of this because technically if you wanted to use fish as a monophyletic group, you would need to include all the other types of vertebrates, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, birds. Technically, if you want to make a, or even an osteichthyes monophyletic group, because all of those other groups are descended from fish, technically they are members of osteichthys. So Mike, technically you and I are bony fish by this definition.
0: I'm putting that on my resume,
1: as you should. It's very impressive. We're just incredibly derived fish, so that is one that we tend to stick away from. It can't th- you
0: know what? Screw my resume. I'm putting. Inc- <laughs> I'm putting derived from fish on my Tinder profile at some point. Like Once that. my girlfriend breaks up with me, <laughs> I'm putting that on my Tinder profile.
1: Oh my god! Um, okay, if that's, I mean, it'll turn some heads. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the trouble with trying to make monophyletic groups with some really, really large groups, where things like you or I have almost none of the characteristics of an osteichthyes, but because our ancestors were, we technically are them too. Is that really useful to say? Not really. And it's also, you know, they can be useful to use paraphyletic groups because. When people refer to osteichthys, you know you're not referring to a mammal. You're referring to a fish that most people think of. Another good example is whales. Because whales technically descended from the the same group that things like cows, deer, and hippos are a part of, which is called the uh, artiodactyla. It's the hooved animals that have either two or four toes. Whales are technically members of that group, because they descended from a member of that group that was somewhat closely related to hippos. So technically, whales are hooved ungulates, which is just, you know, ungulate is a word for things that have hooves and run. But technically, whales are a member of that group, but they're so far derived and have none of the features of them anymore that it's not useful to talk about them in that sense.
0: So it sounds as though you're telling me as we're trying to get into this, or maybe you're going to try to get into this, that any definition that we try and come up with scientifically for fish is going to wind up including a lot of things that just don't fit into that category. And it winds up becoming a category that is so broad as to become useless.
1: Pretty much, yes. Which is why they try to refine it a little bit more. Uh, But there's one more group that I want to discuss before I want to get a little further into that um and that is uh what's called a polyphyletic group which is the absolute worst kind because it's not based on being related at all just based on features so uh, have you ever heard the term pachyderm
0: pachyderm i can't say i have
1: so it is a term that is generally because it means like it literally translates to thick skin and it's a group you know mostly made up of like african animals like hippos rhinos uh, elephants because they have like this thick leathery skin and that was they they were thought they were put in a group called pachydermata because they have thick skin and that was a real scientific group for a little while because we hadn't yet decided on grouping animals based on ancestry and we're only doing it by traits so that is called a polyphyletic group because it's a group made up of animals that are not closely related and exclude ones that are closely related to those animals that you are including. So like it's a polyphyletic group because you are taking multiple different things and turning them into one thing.
0: So this is kind of something where you would have, for instance, people probably further in the back that maybe not, a, did not quite understand evolution the way we do that. were just trying to put things into a category and would say, well, we've got these animals that all have this trait in common. And that trait is more of just a coincidence of evolution or I believe is the term convergent evolution as opposed to it being actually related um, when it comes to the, the tree of life. Is that about kind of, is that the right way to think about this, this third term here?
1: Yeah, that, that is a pretty good way to to think about it. It's, it's not quite convergent evolution, um, but it's as much about convergent evolution that a layperson really needs to understand is that sometimes different you know distantly related groups can evolve traits that are the same just because they work well in whatever environment they're in you know for example let's see what's you know birds and bats both flying that is convergent you know because their common ancestor way way back in probably like the carboniferous period or the permian period pr- yeah probably yeah, probably like early Carboniferous, so like three hundred ish million years ago or so, did not fly. So because each of those evolved to fly separately, that is a convergent trait. Uh, which maybe you know under the old system used to link, you know, say that bats and birds are pretty closely related when, like I said, they're separated by like 300 million years.
0: So, and what we're talking about here would just be the same as like, if me, somebody from South America and somebody from Asia all happen to wind up with brown hair and trying to put us all in the same, you know, family, you know, the fact that we all have brown hair doesn't actually really mean a whole lot when it comes to what it is we're actually talking about here. It just so happens that we all, wound up having brown hair through the process of evolution and natural selection.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a a really good comparison. Wonderful. So I I don't want to spend a ton more time on fish because fish are a super weird diverse group but um, there's also members that most people don't think about besides the two groups I mentioned, the bony fish and like sharks and and, you know, rays are in that group too, like stingrays are in Chondric these.
0: R.I.P. Steve Irwin.
1: Oh, the, the man, the legend.
0: Can we do an episode on Steve Irwin? I can try. I would love that so much. I I miss that man. (laughs) I love, there was very few things I remember in my life from before I was, you know, eight or nine years old. I forget exactly how old (laughs) it was when he died, but Steve Irwin is one of
1: them. Yeah. Yeah. We can try, but so there's those two main groups and then there are uh, what's called the jawless fishes, which are more primitive because one of the biggest, I'd say arguably the biggest you know, revolution in vertebrate uh, history is growing a jaw, because there are vertebrates such as things like that you might have heard of, like lampreys or hagfish, that they they have a mouth, but they do not have like a bony jaw with like good musculature and true teeth in it. Um, instead, they have they're basically like little horns made of keratin. You know, the same material that like cow horns are made out of, and they use those. To just sort of bite and rip off uh, things, so like they have musculature, but they don't have any bone in their jaw, and those are technically those would be quote unquote fish as well, but they are a separate group that sort of osteichthians and chondrichthians evolved from, and they just have a couple members that are left. The rest of the group is is kind of no longer around. But so moving on, sort of up through fish. Osteoichthians are the group that I'm most familiar with just because that's the group that turned into vertebrates. So there are two big group, or turned into uh, tetrapods, which I'll I'll explain what that is in a minute, but it means four feet is what tetrapod means. So it's things with uh, like four limbs, basically every vertebrate besides fish. But there's two big groups of Osteoichthians. There are the ray-finned fish, which is pretty much every fish that you can think of whether it's, you know, perch, uh, bass, whatever, Um, anything that is not a shark, that is is a bony fish, if you're thinking of it, it is probably a ray-finned fish. The other group are the lobe-finned fishes, which actually have some bones in their fins, whereas the ray-finned fishes don't. They have some weird kind of struts made out of keratin as well, and they're not that closely related to tetrapods, but sar- uh, the, the lobe fin fishes are called sarcopterygian fishes. Their bones and their fins are what turned into our arms and legs. So members of this group are things like lungfish or things like uh, coelacanths are a very well known member of this group. So they turned into amphibians. So Mike, what is a, what is an amphibian to you?
0: Before we do that, can I actually ask you one quick uh, question that kind of goes back to level zero for what it is we're talking about? Absolutely, yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of times uh, about vertebrates and everything. Mm -hmm. I think I know what a vertebrate is, but just because we are kind of blasting definitions on this episode, I just want to make sure that we all have a common definition of a vertebrate. So if you wouldn't mind, just for both myself, because I think I know what a vertebrate is, and for everybody
1: else, what is a vertebrate really? So the, the technical definition are things with bilateral symmetry. So if you cut it down the middle, starting from like the top of the head down, it will be symmetrical on both sides. It has paired muscles going down the front. So there's, you know, the same muscles on both sides as well. That kind of goes along with being symmetrical like that. But most importantly, it's got a uh, dorsal nerve cord, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a cord of nerves that goes down your back and a notochord, which is this like so really stiff rod of cartilage that also goes down your back to give your body structure. Those are the main things that a vertebrate needs. But for most, in, as far as most people are concerned, it is animals with bones. So again, that sort of loosely only applies to things like sharks and those jawless fish because they are, they have cartilage instead of true bone. So that's a loose definition, but they're things with a backbone. Things where if you were to look at a skeleton, it would be on the inside, whereas opposed to something like an arthropod, which are things like insects, spiders, scorpions, crabs, they have an exoskeleton, so a, a hard, stiff skeleton on the outside.
0: I, I'm glad we went through that because the definition I had in my head was just animals that have a backbone. And I'm glad that that's like basically correct, but there's kind yep. of more to it. I'm glad there's more to kind of see there. So going back to kind of the next thing where we ask Mike to define something and then explain exactly where <laughs> I'm wrong. We were, uh, we were talking about amphibians, correct? Yep. Wonderful. So amphibians. When I hear amphibian, the first animal that comes to my mind is a frog. And then after that, they are like those car boats that like you take tours on (laughs) in Boston. And they're like, you're going around the city and all of a sudden you're in the water and it becomes a boat. And so when I hear amphibian, the basically the only thing I can think of is if I were to try and define it is something that spends, you know, a minimum amount of time, in the water and a minimum amount of time on the land, something that really kind of needs both to survive. It could not survive in the middle of the ocean or a freshwater lake, but it also couldn't survive in the middle of, you know, in the middle of any kind of land, something that needs to spend a decent amount of time in both places. That's what I think of when I hear uh, amphibian or an amphibious creature.
1: Okay. That is largely true. So they... Obviously, there are exceptions to all of those things. So there are some purely aquatic amphibians. One that comes to mind are things like the axolotl, which are a type of salamander who probably the most commonly kept pet salamander because they have like the external gills that you see. If you look up, uh, it's anyone anyone who feels the need to look it up. It's A-X-O-L-T-L. I believe that's how it's spelled, but I'm, I'm a little dyslexic, so it's probably not right. But anyway... Uh, so there, there are some exceptions, but that's broadly true. The main thing that's sort of descriptive of amphibians is that no matter where they spend most of their time, you know, things like toads spend almost all of their time on land away from water, but all of them need water to reproduce because their eggs do not have a shell. They just lay their eggs in the water. And if they were to lay them on land, they would dry out and die. That is sort of the key thing with what most people consider amphibians.
0: Is they need to be able to... They need water in order to be able to reproduce. More so than they need water to be able to survive. It's more that they need water in order to be able to reproduce. And any time that they spend in water is almost coincidental to that reproduction.
1: Yes and no. Like, obviously there are some that spend the majority of their time in the water like axolotls. There's... So... I want to lead with the, by far, the largest group of amphibians that are around today are frogs. Like 90% of amphibians around today are frogs. The There's one group that's really weird called Zecilians. I don't won't know almost anything about them. There's not that many of them around. The other group, namely, is salamanders. But so there there are salamanders who spend most, if not all of their time in water. Frogs are more variable in that things like toads, have thicker skin that they can't really breathe through anymore that is another big thing of amphibians is that they uh if they are in water and their skin is wet or you know even if they're on land if their skin is wet they can exchange gases through it not as efficiently as through their lungs but they can still do it but toads can't because they made their thin, uh their, their skin a little thicker in order to sort of protect themselves plus they have some cool like poison glands on them but the the main thing is the thicker skin so they don't dry out. So they can be. There are some like desert toads that reproduce like the one time it rains in the desert.
0: <laughs> a desert toad?
1: Yeah. So there's an actual very cute species of uh, frog called the desert rain frog. It's definitely worth your time to look it up.
0: We are going to put a link in the uh, in the show notes <laughs> for this because desert rain frog sounds like the name of the band I'm going to start with a couple of friends <laughs> that have recently quit doing drugs, but still like oh my God. Cool to be around.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so that, that is the single big thing with amphibians is that they never evolved a true way to leave the water. In that sense, they are a lot like fish because, you know, there are a lot of species of fish that can survive for like a couple days at a time, uh, on land. However, no matter how well adapted to land you are. Things like toads, perfectly well adapted to land. If you cannot reproduce away from water, you will always be at kind of a disadvantage because water is one of the first things to go when there's like a change in climate, which not just happening today, but happening throughout all of Earth's history. Water is really temporary with the exception of the ocean. And... Uh, So you're always at kind of a a disadvantage with that.
0: This kind of reminds me of, I believe it was our second episode. um, We were first talking about dinosaurs. We were talking about Pangea. And we were sort of talking about how when it came to the center of Pangea, there just wasn't enough water for a whole lot of anything to survive. And that goes for nearly all life that, or really all life that we know of today, But it kind of, if we're kind of taking that concept and expanding it out for amphibians here, amphibians that can survive on land, that as you say, toads are perfectly well adapted to survive on land. Well, that's great. We can take one toad and we can take it wherever we like on land for any particular length of time. But at the end of the day, if we want there to be more toads, if we want these amphibians to be able to continue to survive, there needs to be a rather reliable water source around them. Otherwise, they really won't be able to get all that far from that water source without dying out.
1: Exactly. So, the the one big thing with amphibians, besides them needing water to reproduce, is something that I hadn't really thought about until just, like, last semester. Is that even though they are technically members of the same group of the, the first things to ever, you know, crawl out of the crawl onto land. They are technically in the same group. They are nothing like what those animals would have been. So living amphibians are not at all a good analog to the first things to come on land. So you can't really compare things like frogs to something like one of the earliest tetrapods. Like I said, those things, technically, you know, we are tetrapods. Because we have four limbs that we use to move around. The first tetrapods, um, the earliest one that comes to mind is something called Tiktaalik. Which, you know, very cool thing that it's just barely got things that you could probably call limbs. So that's like on the fence of whether it's a tetrapod or still just a fish. A frog is nothing comparable to the first things to crawl out of the ocean. And, and why like why specifically is that? So they're like what what is that difference? The biggest thing is, you know, 350 million years of evolution. You know. So, yeah, they're still tied to the water, but that doesn't mean they have that they just stopped evolving. You know, it's not like they crawled out and were like, "I'm good here." You know, that's not how evolution works. You know, you might hear of like the phrase like a living fossil. That phrase really shouldn't exist because that implies that things stop evolving because they're like good enough for their like environment a really good example of something that's commonly called that is the coelacanth that i mentioned earlier you know we thought that coelacanths were extinct for like 60 plus million years until somebody fished one up in 1938 and it looks very much like the last one that we had you know from the fossil record but that doesn't mean that this one, or this this population that's still around today, isn't evolving. It just means that, you know, maybe the changes that are happening are not fossilizable. You know, things like they're becoming more efficient at eating. Maybe they're eating different things. Maybe they have a slightly different feeding mechanism. Maybe they have a different reproduction mechanism that we don't know about. So, just because they are still tied to the water and are still quote unquote primitive, that doesn't mean that they are comparable to the other primitive things.
0: This sort of reminds me of what you were talking about earlier when it comes to it comes to kind of classification errors, where just because these particular organisms happen to share a particular trait doesn't really mean they're all related. It means they happen to share that particular trait, which is something to take note of, but not necessarily something to classify. Organisms
1: by exactly, so the the technically correct term for amphibians today. So this is something that you might be thinking of if if you're vaguely familiar with sort of like the kingdom phylum class order family genus species system. Is that once you get into higher levels of biology, you realize that's all nonsense. We don't really use that anymore. Besides, like genus, family, genus, and species are, are pretty okay. But are think, you joking? No, we don't use that. So, because, for example, for example. God. <laughs> so, I'll talk about this more when we get to birds. So, keep, keep that in mind. But amphibia is a class. It is on the same level as reptiles, mammals, birds. But technically, reptiles evolved from this group. It is a, it is a subgroup of amphibians but yet they're the same rank. So the whole rank system kind of doesn't make sense. Do you see what I mean? Uh, on some level, I can see
0: kind of how that works. If something evolves from something else and yet it is on the same rank, clearly there is some sort of a uh, a problem there. But isn't there still, like, isn't that how species are named, like by genus and then species? And doesn't doesn't that still go with that? Like, I'm still... When you say that you guys don't use the kingdom, phylum, order, class, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like is it not used at all? Have I been taught it wrong? Is it kind of one of those areas of science that is undergoing some changes? How
1: how does that actually how does that actually work? We still use the names, so like, well, amphibia is a bad example for that because nowadays most people use list amphibia. Because that includes um, a lot of the, the maybe not the absolute first things that crawled out of the water, but the things that directly came from them. And, you know, what we would think of as amphibians today, it includes all of those. Whereas amphib- amphibia, as most people think about today, only includes the ones that are alive today uh, and their most recent common ancestor. So there were lots and lots of different groups of amphibians that just didn't make it to today. We only have like one lineage that happened to make it to today. That is frogs uh, amphibian or frogs, salamanders, and those weird, uh, Sicilian things that I mentioned earlier, but taxonomy is really weird in that it's, it's always changing. And like I said, we still use a lot of the terminology, a lot of the names, because that's just what most people know, uh, including scientists. You know, if you were to just say, oh, everything that is an amphibian, I'm calling supercalifragilistic. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I'm calling it that now. Everyone would be like, what are you doing? We already have a name for that. If you want to change the definition of what that name means, okay, we might be able to work with that. But calling it something completely new when we already have kind of a name for it isn't something that really happens.
0: Okay, so there's kind of no reason to reinvent the wheel when there's already a name for something, even if the very strict hierarchy that I was taught in Mr. Mancabelli's seventh grade science class and Miss Lincoln Hoker's <laughs> tenth grade biology class, that might be, you know, as we kind of talked about at the beginning here, a little too simplistic for the way science is actually done. Not to say that it's not used, but it's not quite as rigid as I was led to believe.
1: Exactly, it is, and especially like in sort of the middle few ranks, it is very flexible, and that is why we've come up with a new word. And new as in, you know, we've been using it as long as I can remember. I don't know exactly when it sort of became a thing to use it, but remember those monophyletic groups that I was talking about where you sort of pick something and all of its descendants, no matter how different they are, are in this group.
0: Yes. That was where we were talking about like the V at any branch of the tree of life.
1: So a new word that I'm going to introduce here is called a clade, which is just a monophyletic group and essentially you can just pick any v and go up from there and there is a name for that group that you just made so for example tetrapods that i was just talking about is a is a clade called tetrapoda it is it does not fit neatly anywhere in the kingdom phylum class order family genus species It doesn't fit neatly anywhere there. So it is a clade. It is in between a couple of them, but it doesn't fit nicely. And there's even lots of other, you know, extensions. You can have subclasses in, you know, infra orders, sub orders, all sorts of different things. But even with all those prefixes that you add to make it more specific, there's just not enough flexibility to encompass how diverse life really is. So that's why we have clades.
0: And I love that, that we have, you know, we have kind of this rigid order that we were taught at, uh, you know, in science class growing up, at least I certainly was. And then, you know, while that is instructive to actual scientists, such as yourself, it is not the only thing that is there to worry about. It is not kind of the only thing to focus on, because real science is a little bit messier than we were all probably led
1: to believe in school. Absolutely. And actually, I'm, just, I just reminded myself of something that I actually got a little wrong. So, I actually had that backwards in that LIS amphibia is all of the currently living things, whereas amphibia in general is all of the other ancestors as well. So, if you want to refer to the ones who are still alive, the technical term is LIS amphibia.
0: Noted, understood, and I'll make sure that I use that in the future. LIS amphibia. Yep, you just
1: add LISS in front of Amphibia.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. So as I'm looking at our notes, do you have anything else to uh, to um, say on Amphibians or are we ready to move
1: on to some land animals? Not really. Just that, like you said, it's just way more messy than most people think it is. Like the the, the big thing that I wanted to hit with Amphibians was that we don't really use that system anymore. So good good hosting, Mike. You led me into it. I, I am glad, and maybe that can be our uh,
0: that can be our episode title for this episode. Uh, science is a lot messier than you were originally thinking, or something along those lines. But I see <laughs> next. I see next looks like we're talking about birds. Do I have to try and define what a bird is now?
1: I actually want to switch that. So let's do let's do reptile first. So what is a reptile?
0: What is a reptile? So when I'm thinking about a reptile, I'm thinking about lizards i'm thinking about things that kind of live in the desert and so i'm thinking about them kind of being cold-blooded and i know that like cold-blooded is probably either an outdated or problematic term but something that doesn't really make its own heat i'm thinking about something that can probably survive without there being a whole lot of water i am uh, in my head i'm thinking of something that's kind of scaly and something that lays eggs and so Something that lays eggs, is cold-blooded, and can survive for long enough periods of time without needing to drink a whole lot of water. That's, when I think of a reptile, that's what I'm thinking of.
1: Okay. So, obviously, like I've said a couple times, there are exceptions to every rule, but that is generally what I think most lay people think of when they think of a reptile. So, let's, let's poke some holes in it, if I could. So... There are quite a few species, actually many, many species of, at least snakes, that uh, don't lay eggs, that they get, they give live birth. Um, really? Yep. For, and also, for example, a lot of the uh, extinct marine reptiles, things like mosasaurs that we've previously talked about, uh, plesiosaurs uh, that I think we've also previously talked about, the, the Loch Ness monster-looking things. And then another... The other like big group of extinct reptiles are are called ichthyosaurs, which literally means fish lizard. They're sort of like the most aquatically adapted and also like the first like big marine reptile because they actually, you know, came out of the water to become reptiles and then went back to the water because they were like, hey, I want to be there now. All of those groups don't lay eggs because they're so adapted to living in the water that like a whale... If they were ever to get on land, they would crush themselves under their own weight and wouldn't really be able to move. So, they gave live birth in the water. There are some, when it comes to like being the cold-blooded, that is, like you, like, like you sort of alluded to, might be the case. That is sort of a misnomer, in that the term that most people use nowadays is ectothermic. Which means that they don't make their own heat. Because, for example, something like a bearded dragon which is one of the most commonly kept pet lizards needs like a basking temperature of like 120 degrees, which I wouldn't really call cold, you know? So some of them do operate at really high temperatures, but they don't make their own heat as opposed to things like mammals that are endothermic. So, you know, inside heat, which make their own heat. And there even are a couple reptiles that do that a little bit. Uh, There's a species of Tegu from South America that the males during the mating season are partially endothermic. Not a lot, not to the degree that mammals are, but they raise their temperature a bit, which is really weird. Do we know
0: how they do that? Like, is there, like, is, is that kind of a mystery? Is that a, like, how does that happen? That temp, You know, you can be sort of like, you know,
1: partially endothermic. So... Basically, they they do it the same way mammals do, essentially, is that when they respirate, you know, which is the process of, you know, taking oxygen that you breathe in, turning it into carbon dioxide and using that combined with the food you eat to make energy. That's called respiration. In that process, you know, mammals sort of altered that chemical, the sort of like chemical reaction that happens there to give off heat. And in fact, only about 3% of what you eat is actually turned into food. Or, t- or turned into like body mass, like muscle, fat, whatever. The other 97% is used to make heat. That That's why mammals need to eat multiple times a day. Whereas a snake, you can just give a, a rat once a week for the bigger ones, maybe once a month, and that's enough food for them. Because they don't need to burn all of it to keep themselves warm. That's nuts. Yep.
0: of what I eat just goes into making me slightly colder than I feel comfortable I need to be while living (laughs) in New York in the winter.
1: Give or take. That's a rough percentage. I'm sure it varies from species to species, but give or take around there. So reptiles are a really, really diverse group in that. And also they're a really problematic group because if we think sort of in a, you know, back in a paleontology sense. The, the first things that most people would consider reptiles were the early amniotes, that is another clade. And an amniote is basically something that has an egg with a shell around it so that you can leave truly leave the water so that you don't need to lay your eggs in water to keep them you know, moist because they need that water to exchange oxygen uh, and keep themselves going. Instead, amniotes, which is derived from uh, the amnion, so if you ever heard of like amniotic fluid, if you've ever had to like anybody who's ever had like a pregnant friend or relative had to get like a test done on the baby, they like sort of stick a needle in to the womb and they take some of the amniotic fluid. That's where that name comes from. And so it's basically just an egg with a shell around the outside to keep the water inside.
0: I am thinking right now, have you ever seen the video online by Bill Words History of the Entire World, I guess?
1: Yes, I have. So I'm thinking of a, the this
0: is a uh, an early moment in there where you've got the animals that are actually leaving the water, and it is he's talking about basically this specific thing where animals were trying to figure out how on earth they were going to actually leave the water and they figure out how to put the you know the eggs inside of a shell so everything you know was all self-contained. am I thinking is this the the thing you're talking about here?
1: Yep, exactly. so that is the group amniota. And here's where reptiles get a little problematic because some people draw the line reptile there. We're saying if it lays an amniotic egg, you know, an egg with a shell that keeps the water inside, that is a reptile. Which means technically mammals would be reptiles. So when you call Mark Zuckerberg a lizard person, you're kind of right. When you say you
0: are calling Mark Zuckerberg, a lizard person. You were talking specifically about yourself here because I want to make sure that that's coming from your mouth and not mine. I plead the fifth. When I think of Mark Zuckerberg, I usually think of, uh, this was phrased to me in another podcast, a spider in a man costume was normally the best way I've heard Mark Zuckerberg described.
1: I also really enjoy that, although that would not be nearly as true as calling him a lizard person.
0: Understood and agreed.
1: So some people draw the line reptile there at amniotic egg, because although, you know, most mammals, there are, there are four species of mammals currently alive that do still lay eggs, spoilers, but the majority of them don't, but there is still all the same layers, you know, that you would find in, you know, a chicken egg or a snake egg. All those same layers are inside the womb of, of a, you know, a pregnant woman or pregnant mammal. So. We just sort of skipped the making an egg step and just sort of keep the baby inside the whole time. So technically, if you draw that line there, mammals are reptiles. However, people disagree on actually where to draw that line. So some people say it should be drawn at the split between the mammal lineage and what most people would consider the reptile lineage. And you can very neatly find where that split is because at the time there were two main groups and the very early members of those groups have something very important, different with their skulls. The reptile lineage have two holes behind their eye in their skull. And those holes, uh, allow muscle to go through and just give muscles an extra place to attach, uh, jaw muscles specifically. So it gives them more, you know, variation in where they get their jaw pressure from. The other lineage has only one behind their hole, behind their eye socket for that muscle attachment. So that, that's the big difference. So reptiles, as most people know them, are the two-hold lineage called diapsids and mammals are the one-hold lineage called synapsids. You know, di meaning two and syn, I'm, I'm sure I, it's probably Greek. It's, I don't think it's Latin, but I think that's Greek for one. I think it's the same root as like single. So that is where some people draw that line where if it's got two holes in its skull, it is a reptile. That is sort of personally where I would draw that line if I had to, but fortunately that's not my job.
0: It seems like this is kind of one of those things that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where, People disagree on where to draw lines on how to classify things and just the whole classification system is a lot messier than people would tend to believe because not everyone, very smart people, don't exactly agree on where to draw the lines on any particular classification of a species
1: or of a group of species. Exactly. And it's if, if people don't agree on where to draw that line, that group is kind of useless, which is why people don't use reptilia. Anymore. Like I. If you look in the last probably 20 years. You will be very hard pressed. To find. A good scientific article. Referencing the name reptilia. Or the the class. Reptilia. In like a real sense. Other than just having to mention it. Because they have to. Because it it is technically a member of that. Whatever that means. Um, The only exception to that. I, I would say. Is people publishing a paper, trying to sort out where this line should be drawn. But somebody say discovering something new, they might call it a reptile, but they do not use the class reptilia, which is kind of seems, you know, like a a little bit of an oxymoron.
0: It sounds as though they're kind of using the colloquial term reptile instead of any kind of scientific classification.
1: Exactly. And so there's two main groups of reptiles that are around today. There have been many, 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 more in the past. So things like those ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs do not fit neatly into either one of these two groups I'm about to mention. Plesiosaurs are one that is iffy, whether it does or doesn't. We're still kind of not sure. Ichthyosaurs, we don't, we know for sure, do not fit in either of these two groups. And turtles are also another one where we're like, I we genuinely do not know what like where turtles came from.
0: That's kind of amazing. Something as ubiquitous as turtles are today. Just the, the number of questions that might be around that. I just find that kind of thing both funny and kind of heartening that there's still a lot of good work to still be done.
1: Absolutely. So there is another group that is not used anymore called anapsids, which means no hole. So that is the term that was used for before uh, the diapsid and synapsids were around. So before they had either two or one, they had no holes. And if you look at turtle skull, they don't appear to have any holes where they should be. So at first people were like, oh, they're anapsids. They're super, super primitive relative to the diapsids. We've sort of come to realize that that's not true in that they do have uh, the two holes. So they are diapsids, but they just sort of lost the backside of the hole. So they just sort of were like, hey, I don't need the back of my skull anymore. <laughs> they are diapsids. In that sense, they are, in my opinion, reptiles. I don't think anybody would be look at a turtle and be like, that's not a reptile.
0: Couldn't you look at it and say it was an amphibian?
1: Technically, yes. Just like you and me are. Yeah. I'll, you know what? I hate the fact that you're right. So they are not amphibians because they do lay a true shelled egg. They have to come on land to do it which I think is is, you know, pretty solid evidence of that they don't lay their eggs in the water. So, oh, okay. But okay. So the the two main groups that I was mentioning earlier are the archosaurs, which means ruling reptiles, which is a little you know, self-servy, but whatever. And then there's the lepidosaurs, which are the scaled reptiles. Technically all of them are pretty scaled, but that's just what it technically translates to. So, lepidosaurs are uh snakes, lizards, uh and this weird thing called the tuatara, which is it looks a lot like a lizard but it's technically not in the same group that lizards are. Those are the only ones that we have today. That is the group that most people think, okay, if the plesiosaur's the laknat monster looking guys if they are true reptiles in this sense, then they probably fit in that group. And then the archosaurs are Uh, represented, you know, in in modern animals today by crocodilians and birds. Does
0: that lead us into our our next category?
1: It sure does. So the closest living, living relative to birds are crocodilians. Fun fact. So with that, Mike, what is a bird?
0: You know, I've actually looked at this question a couple of times. Now, what is a bird? And I think my first thought, along with, you know, most normal people, was like flight was kind of one of the main characteristics mm-hmm. until I remembered the penguin. And then, I rem- and then I realized, okay, either flight is not an essential characteristic of birds or penguins aren't birds. <laughs> and I think, I think it'd have to be the first one that flight is not an essential characteristic of birds. But if flight is not an essential characteristic of birds, then I, for the life of me, maybe it's like the beaks or something. I, for the life of me, could not put birds into a category that
1: also includes penguins. Okay. So I'm going to blow your mind here for a second. That is absolutely a a very reasonable conclusion to come to 100% that that flight is not a prerequisite for being a bird. Okay. However, it is but penguins used to be able to fly but can't anymore oh boy penguin ancestors used to be able to fly as is true with ostrich ancestors emu ancestors they just no longer can they gave up flying to be able to do something else
0: so if i can try and get this right and you're gonna have to remind me of the term here when we're talking about branches of the tree of life where we're talking taking everything one from one from one specific branch what was that term
1: that is a monophyletic group or a clade you can use either
0: all right so i'm going to use clade because it's one syllable yep so if we have so we take the clade of all your know, kind of flighted flighted species flighted animals that happens to include what we today look at as penguins that no longer have that characteristic of flight but their ancestors did and they able they're able to go back to kind of that one split so just because Penguins don't happen to fly today, they still belong in the category of birds because their ancestors were able to fly. They come from that same branch of the tree of life. Is that right?
1: That is the whole message that I wanted to drive home for this entire episode. So good job, Mike.
0: That's what I'm here for.
1: So, yes. So, flightlessness is really hard to sort of characterize. Last time that I saw somebody attempt to figure out how many times flightlessness evolved, because it's not like penguins and ostriches are that closely related, even though they are both flightless. Uh, the last time I saw somebody try to figure out how many times flightlessness evolved, it was somewhere in like the 17 range. But they were like, it's probably closer to like mid-30s because it happens a lot on islands.
0: When you say 17s or mid-30s, what, what are you talking about there? 17s, mid-30s? The,
1: the number of lineages that gave up flying gotcha gotcha so it happens a lot on islands because especially if you know birds are very famous in their island evolution you know because they can fly to an island and then or or get blown in like a big storm to an island and then if there's a good number of them that got blown there over you know the course of a good number of years they can start reproducing but it might be you know too far away to you know For a storm to have blown something like a cat something a a ground-based predator so you know a couple members of this group become more ground adapted of, of these birds become more ground adapted and then they just eventually lose their ability to fly but islands tend to have a generally pretty poor fossil record just because there's not a lot of land area to them and they're generally eroding instead of depositing sediment which as we've talked about places where you erode is not a great place to preserve fossils. So, based on you know, projections, it could be as many as like mid 30s for the number of times that flightlessness has independently evolved in birds, but the first birds were flighted. They could fly. So that is a defining characteristic of the class Aves, which is the scientific name for birds.
0: So, so things that at one point, if I could try and put a definition on this based on what you've talked about, would a definition be something to the effect of a category of birds that either now, or pardon me, a category of animals that now or at one point in their evolutionary history had the ability to fly?
1: Yes, but you need to add a couple of things to that. Let's do it. So the simplest way to describe a bird would be a flying reptile with feathers. That is the simplest way. That technically could apply to some dinosaurs that are not birds. But the, the feathers are really important because otherwise they're kind of hard to distinguish from pterosaurs, which as we talked about in uh, episode two, I believe, about dinosaurs, that pterosaurs are not dinosaurs. They are their closest relative, but they are not dinosaurs proper whereas birds are dinosaurs proper and feathers you know true feathers only have evolved in dinosaurs and you know therefore birds okay so there's kind
0: of there's kind of more there than just that but I can kind of see the 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 general point here when it comes to birds is there any is there anything else that we should be aware of when it comes to birds is there anything else that when I'm trying to think of birds, is there anything else that kind of makes that more complicated or is that the, the general point when it comes to what birds are?
1: Birds are the big reason why reptilia doesn't work because when people think of reptiles, they don't think of birds because to, to most people, birds are not reptiles, even though they are as much of a reptile as a crocodile or a lizard. They are just as much of a reptile as those other animals because they're in that same group wherever you draw that line if you exclude birds you are making a paraphyletic group you know that group that you know includes everything except you know this one branch that doesn't happen to fit the definition that I'm using and those are bad we don't like those so in order if you want to make a clade of reptiles you need to include birds and so that's the big reason why reptilia kind of falls apart and why a lot of people don't use it. But if you preface up front that you are including birds in the statement, or you are excluding birds when you say reptile, I've seen that, you know, where in the introduction, in the first paragraph or two, it'll say, you know, when we use this term, we are meaning this and excluding these members of this group, although we acknowledge that they are in this group. I've seen that. That's very common with dinosaur papers because they're talking about, you know, a group of dinosaurs, but they don't want to talk about birds, so they're saying here herein we are talking about dinosaurs. When we say dinosaur, we are meaning non-avian dinosaurs. So we're we are not talking about birds.
0: So basically the term reptile as well as dinosaur and, you know, I assume lots of other things needs to be kind of defined way more specifically than either is colloquially used or even is agreed upon in members of science. And so as long as you are defining your terms specifically and properly in whatever it is you are doing, you can still use these terms. But if you are just kind of using them on their own terms, they're sort of meaningless once you actually get down to it.
1: I wouldn't say meaningless, but steered away from is, is probably the, the sort of phrase that I would use.
0: Less helpful than you might think. Right, perfect. Okay, so I think we can move on from bird, and we can kind of quickly here hit the uh, the last one we have here, which is the one I'm probably most familiar with. It looks like I'm going to be asked to define what is a mammal. Yes. So when it comes to mammals, I'm trying to think about. I think I saw uh, something on Facebook earlier this week where it was like coconuts are mammals because they have produce milk. <laughs> So, uh, well, I'm not going to quite make that claim. I think that there is something there that might kind of make, uh, make sense. You were talking about how birds need to have feathers. I'm thinking mammals probably need to produce some sort of hair or fur. They probably need to produce milk of some sort, which I assume would be some sort of a defining characteristic of mammals. And they probably generally give live birth and i know that's kind of one of those things whenever you say that somebody is immediately going to start yelling up and down about a platypus yep but i feel like i still want to mention that because that seems like it's one of those defining characteristics that you just need to include a butt at the at the end of so fur milk live birth is kind of what i'm going for when it comes to mammals
1: pretty much it depends sort of how you define fur because technically Fur and feathers are pretty similar, especially for what they were initially evolved for. So dinosaurs originally sort of developed fur. And again, I always have to say, like, dinosaurs didn't, you know, sort of think, hmm, some some feathers would be good right now It is just some modified scales that happened to be bigger and have some more surface area to keep in heat, which, as we talked about in the dinosaur episode, is why some people think that dinosaurs probably were uh, at endothermic producing their own heat because otherwise why would you need feathers to keep in heat if you weren't making your own evolution doesn't
0: have a thought process evolution just is
1: yes so that is you know primitive feathers are not at all like bird feathers that we see today sort of with the big sort of like fan shape uh, they're very much like hair they're sort of very thin kind of filamentous. They might be a little more fluffy per individual sort of like shaft, um, than most people think hair is, but they're not all that different. The big thing is milk. Only mammals produce milk. I, that is one of the few things where I'm very confident in saying that like no other group has ever done that. And even things like platypus and the other, uh, So there's one species of platypus, and like I said, there are four species of mammals that lay eggs. The other three species are uh, echidnas. There are three different species of echidnas. They are also, those four species make up a group called monotremes, which are just the egg-laying mammals. Even they produce milk. So every mammal that we are aware of produces milk. Um, And then the... Like you said, we already kind of addressed the live birth. Although I do want to talk about uh, marsupials for a minute when it comes to live birth, just because marsupials are really cool and weird.
0: I think I know what are marsupials, but once again, if you could just tell everybody what very quickly when you say marsupial, what it is that you're talking about.
1: Marsupials are mammals that have a pouch for their little baby. They don't lay eggs, but they give birth to a very, very undeveloped baby that sort of just crawls its way into the pouch where it, basically just finishes developing. So they just give super, super early birth, and then their pouch serves as the womb for the rest of the baby's development.
0: I'm thinking kangaroo
1: here. Kangaroo, you know, wombats, mostly Australia, also a lot in South America. And everyone loves our friendly neighborhood single North American species of uh, marsupial, which is the opossum. I love those little guys. Absolutely, who wouldn't? Yeah, there are lots and lots of them in... Australia, also South America, but the, the main diversity in mammals is the, uh, placental mammals. You know, the ones that you think of where, you know, the mom gets pregnant and there is a placenta that attaches to the baby. That's where the baby gets its nutrients. Technically marsupials do have a placenta while the baby is still like in the actual womb, but it's there for maybe like a week and then it crawls up into the pouch so marsupials are just also super weird in that a little bit of adult scientific language but this is a science podcast so i'm going to mention some anatomical terms try not to giggle so marsupials i'm just gonna
0: mute myself instead of trying not to giggle
1: sure uh marsupials have two penises (laughs) mike you said you were gonna mute yourself
0: you didn't give me enough time
1: okay they have two penises And correspondingly, the females have two vaginas. And some species of marsupial have a third vagina that is exclusively used for birth and that comes and goes. It is not always there, which blew my mind. I had no idea that was a thing until I listened to it uh, on another science podcast. In that they also have a cloaca, which is a term most people think of with birds and reptiles in that it is a single orifice that is used for both excretion of waste you know pooping peeing and also reproduction obviously you know you are a placental mammal you do not have those or you don't have a cloaca you have separated uh tubes for those things and I, that just blew my mind that marsupials had a cloaca and i wanted to share that with you so yeah you can come back now mike it's okay
0: I I am now off of mute. I got a good uh chuckle to myself on that. But I do I do love the fact that there is all of this variation in all of these things that I would have thought were so simple until it was kind of, you know, it was kind of my job to start thinking about what these things might be, whether it is, you know, what is a mammal and all of the different variations of that, including the multiple organs that some of these, uh, mammals might have such as marsupials. Absolutely. And, and with all of these, just the, the fact that it's all a little bit more complicated than I would have originally thought. And that is a feature, not a bug, I think is just, uh, it's sort of a beautiful part <laughs> of the kind of science that we're talking about here.
1: So I, I really, I really love that too, but let's see what else about mammals. So mammals are probably the most cut and dry clade of vertebrates. In that there's really not any members, uh, like, alive today of any other group where you're like, I don't know where that belongs. You know, unlike birds where it's like, are birds separate than reptiles or aren't they? At least in, like, a layperson's mind. um, You know, in science, they are not. Birds are reptiles. But there's no real, nobody really arguing that, like, you or I are What the layperson thinks of as a reptile. Where it gets a little fuzzier is where to draw the line between mammals and their ancestors. Because if you remember earlier, I didn't just say, I didn't say that I drew the mammal line at that split between diapsids and synapsids. There are plenty of non-mammal synapsids. Things like dimetrodon, for example commonly mistaken for a dinosaur that is sort of the long lizard looking thing with the big sail on its back that is called dimetrodon that is not uh, a dinosaur that is more closely related to us than it is to dinosaurs and depending on where you draw that mammal line i don't think people really consider dimetrodon and, like, its close relatives, mammals. But people sort of argue about where do we draw the line for what is a true mammal and what is the group that mammals evolved from, which is called therapsids. People sort of argue about where to draw that line because, like I said, milk is sort of, like, the main thing for mammals. But milk is produced by glands, and glands don't really fossilize. So we don't know which was the first thing to produce milk. We have no idea. So it's
0: less about arguing what species might fit within a particular definition than it is saying we have a definition that seems to work reasonably well. We just don't have all the information to place, you know, every known species either in or outside of that definition. Is that about right?
1: Yeah. Yep. That seems, that seems pretty good.
0: Wonderful. Is there anything else that we need to know about mammals? Is there anything else that we need to know about kind of all of these vertebrates in general?
1: I just really like that, you know, you might see if you happen to be members of some science uh, groups on Facebook. I'm personally a very big fan of uh, a group called Wild Green Memes for Ecological Fiends on Facebook. I
0: believe I've seen you share some of these memes before.
1: I love them. They're excellent. And but... So you may occasionally come across a meme about like something that is clearly not a fish being a fish. Technically all tetrapods are fish. I I just really enjoy that. So, and I thought it was very funny, uh, back at the beginning when you gave your definition for fish, you mentioned dolphins and whales. And I bet a lot of people were like, like listeners might've been like, Oh, those aren't fish. Those are mammals. I'm like, psych. They're both
0: awesome. Awesome. Let's make it more complicated right at the very end of the podcast.
1: (laughs) Because like I said, you you never stop being. And I I think I elaborated on this a little bit in probably the dinosaur episode, episode two, and then also the first episode where it's like you don't stop being what your ancestors were. There, There does come a point where it is no longer useful to call you that thing. Like it is not useful when referring to, say, whale anatomy. Or let's let's use something that's not even in the water. Referring to sloth anatomy, to call it a fish, or or an osteichthian, even though it technically is, is just not useful. So there does come a point where that happens, but that doesn't mean that they're no longer a part of that group. And I'll use the same analogy that I used in that episode, where it's like, even though my mom's maiden name is different from my last name, that doesn't mean that I'm no that I'm not a member of that part of my family that doesn't mean that i'm not in the same lineage as my grandparents we form a monophyletic clade ourselves just because something's called something different doesn't mean that it has shed all of the characteristics because even in mammals you can still see if you know what you're looking for some of the old characteristics for example there is a nerve That goes to, uh, I think in your tongue and you would think, oh, it goes from, it's like, I think it's the muscle that controls your tongue actually, but it's called the vagus nerve. I don't know exactly what it does, but I know that's the name, but it goes from your brain, goes all the way down to your heart and wraps around your aorta and then comes back up to your, uh, to your mouth. Doesn't seem like that long of a journey until you get something like a giraffe where that nerve goes all the way down its neck wraps around its heart and then comes back up to its mouth. That seems inefficient. It's very inefficient, but the reason why it's like that is because fish, their most of their internal organs, especially like their heart is very close to their head. So at the time, that probably was, you know, one of the most efficient paths to take. But you can't, you know, with a very important nerve like that, you can't just sort of bypass that step of going around the heart. That's just how it knows how to grow. So things like that, where there are still remnants. If you know the things you're looking for of humans still being fish. Uh, another good one is uh, part of your vertebra, which is called uh, the centrum, which is sort of the sort of big round part, not sort of like the arches that come off it or anything that, uh, that is a modified version of that stiff cartilage tube that I mentioned way back at the beginning of what is a vertebrate that that's called the notochord. And that has since become part, part of our, uh, you know, vertebrae, even though it's no longer made out of cartilage. So you can still see it. You just got to know what you're looking for.
0: Just got to know what you're looking for. And that is why we have you around to tell us what it is we should be looking for when it comes to, to all of these. And so when it comes to, All of these kind of, we were talking specifically about species of vertebrates here, and while it applies very well to that, it applies pretty well to kind of everything it is that we're kind of be talking about on this podcast. Things are a lot more complicated than you probably remember. Things are a lot more complicated than you probably think. Even if you are kind of a pro-science or a science-minded person, it can be a little bit more difficult to try and place things in categories. And that is the point. That is a good thing. That is uh, a reason to appreciate the process, not a reason to necessarily get frustrated by what it entails, even if it can be frustrating to be relearning the kind of science that you thought you already knew. And that was kind of one of the, the main points of this episode was unlearning science with you know looking at different species of animals and species of vertebrates that go along with that
1: yeah I I really like the way you phrased that that was that was really good
0: wonderful well I think that we can go ahead and wrap it up here for our first episode of 2021 my name is Mike that is Gavin science can be a little bit messy sometimes but that is okay Gavin I hope you have a great start to your year and I will see you next week take care buddy
1: absolutely and all of our listeners I hope you have a wonderful start to your year I hope you actually use that gym membership um well, or, or or get something analogous uh, while you are still at home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, have a great year, everybody. See you next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Finella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.